You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 19th of February 2024 on Monaco Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, it's been a weekend of high-level meetings. The Munich Security Conference attracted 450 senior decision-makers, as well as leaders from around the world, including the Greek Prime Minister. I'm very, very happy and very privileged that as a leader of a centre-right, conservative but also progressive party, we were the ones who actually brought this piece of legislation in front of Parliament and got it through with a very strong majority. Kyriakos Mitsotakis talking to our Andrew Muller on the same-sex marriage bill which has just been passed. We'll also have a readout from the African Union Summit which concluded yesterday and look at the Japan-Ukraine conference for promotion of economic growth and reconstruction. The reverberations caused by the death in prison of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny continue around the world. Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. Putin is responsible. What has happened in Navalny is yet more proof of Putin's brutality. Joe Biden joins the chorus of international condemnation. We'll have analysis of the situation. Then a blast of television news. And finally, we meet Canadian singer Ali X. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. The United Nations top court opens a week of hearings on the legal consequences of Israel's occupation of Palestinian territories today, with more than 50 states due to address the judges. China has offered to support long-time strategic partner Hungary on public security issues going beyond trade and investment relations during a rare meeting with Prime Minister Viktor Orban, just as NATO struggles to expand its network in Europe. And Oppenheimer, a three-hour epic about the making of the atomic bomb in World War II, was the big winner at the BAFTA Film Awards on Sunday, winning the top honours for Best Film and Best Director, as well as five other awards. Do stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, as Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine tips into a third year, we head to Tokyo, where the Japan-Ukraine Conference for Promotion of Economic Growth and Reconstruction is taking place today. I'm joined now by James D. Brown, Professor of International Affairs at Temple University's Japan campus and a specialist on Russia-Japan relations. James, many thanks for coming on the show. What is Japan's relationship with Ukraine? Why is it hosting this conference? Well, I think if you asked me the, the same question just a few years ago, I would have replied that it was a, a very limited relationship. Instead, um, between 2012 and 2020, Japan's priority was instead very much to build closer relations with Russia. But with the, the start of the invasion of Ukraine, that very much changed for Tokyo. And they recognized that Russia's invasion of Ukraine was not simply a matter for European security, but was actually very much a threat to the, the international order on which Japan's own security depends. And so for that reason, they've joined European and North American partners in introducing tough sanctions on Russia and also on the flip side of that, providing support for Ukraine. 
And who's attending and what's on the agenda? So um, there's a number of government officials, but also there's been a big emphasis on Japan getting as much private sector involvement as possible. So with the encouragement of the Japanese government, a lot of Japanese companies uh, are taking part, meeting counterparts on the Ukrainian side. And what they're talking about is, in particular, seven areas of, of cooperation. And these are things that, in particular, Japan feels they have expertise uh, that they can particularly help Ukraine with. Of course, Japan has suffered a number of very serious natural disasters, and that gives them some, um, some experience in dealing with the consequences and the rebuilding. So uh, one example is uh, debris removal. So dealing with buildings that have collapsed, how to make those areas safe and to actually reuse some of the materials there. And what's Japan pledged so far? Well, um, the the numbers um, are, are quite high. We've got for financial support from the Japanese government about 5.5 billion US dollars, and then approximately about another 2 billion US dollars for humanitarian assistance. However, I do stress that that's assistance which has been pledged rather than delivered. Mm. So after this conference takes place, we'll have to see when this money actually gets spent. So under Shinzo Abe's leadership, Japan pursued closer ties with Russia. How would you characterise the relationship with Moscow now? Well, it's been completely reversed that um, under Abe's leadership, it was all about Russia. It was all about bonhomie between Abe and Putin. Now the relationship has sunk to its worst state uh, since the, the end of the Second World War. Russia has described Japan as an unfriendly nation. They've ended talks on signing a peace treaty, which has still not been concluded since the end of the Second World War. And there's been a lot of sort of niggly exchanges uh, between the two sides, including sort of rhetoric from the Russian side uh, about, um, you know, potential action that Russia could take against Japan. And is Japan exploring options to reduce its dependence on Russian gas imports? Uh, I mean, we know that Japan's agreed to comply with new US sanctions against Russian gas projects in the Arctic. Does that put their own projects at risk? Uh, Well, that's the big exception. So we've seen that Japan has committed to reducing uh, the imports of Russian oil and Russian coal, but no not for gas. And the judgment from the Japanese side is it's simply too important for a resource-poor country like Japan to do without uh, Russian gas. So Japan depends on Russia for about 9% of its imports uh, of gas. And although they have agreed that they won't import additional gas from the Arctic LNG2 project, they want to continue importing LNG from an existing project, which is on Sakhalin Island. So it's a a rather unusual situation. Japan, very tough in some respects, but they don't want to touch that area of gas imports. So there have been several major developments in the war situation over the last few days. Vladimir Zelensky's just made an urgent appeal for more weapons to avoid a catastrophic situation in Europe. We know that President Joe Biden's assured him that $60 billion in military aid is on the way, though that, of course, still needs to pass a final congressional vote. Alexei Navalny, the leader of Putin's only credible opposition, has died in prison and Ukraine has withdrawn from Avdivka. How is all of this being viewed from Japan? 
Well, I think from the, the Japanese point of view, there's the feeling that there's no point pretending that they can assist Ukraine in the same way as the United States. There's no way that Japan can step in if U.S. support were to, to disappear. So instead, the view in Tokyo is that they need to support Ukraine in their own way which means uh, when they do provide military equipment, it's of a non-lethal uh, type. And also that uh, they'll place greater emphasis on civilian support than perhaps some other um, countries that uh, are supporting Ukraine. So it's, it's not really in quite the same position as some of the NATO members. James, thank you very much indeed. That's James D. Brown there speaking to me from Tokyo. And this is The Globalist. The Munich Security Conference included world leaders from a range of nations, among them Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis, fresh off a bill in his own parliament that made Greece the first Orthodox Christian country to legalise same-sex marriage. Monocle's Andrew Muller caught up with Mitsotakis in Munich for a wide-ranging interview that began with the Prime Minister's reaction to that landmark legislation. This was actually a piece of legislation that we passed for those people who actually deeply care and are personally affected by this issue. And it's a fundamental question uh, of, uh, of equality, of human rights, of the rule of law. And uh, I'm very, very happy and very privileged that as a leader of a center-right conservative but also progressive party, we were the ones who actually brought this piece of legislation in front of parliament and got it through with a very strong majority. I'm also happy because this gave us the opportunity to explain to the Greek society what this bill is really all about. And for the first time, we actually heard from those who are deeply affected by the fact that mm. marriage equality was not recognized until today in Greece by the children who did not have the same right to legitimate parents and by, by those who basically told us, look, why are you denying me the right uh, uh, to to get married, and I even told my parliamentary group uh, something which another you know conservative leader had said that you know marriage is at the end of the day a conservative institution, <laughs> and I'm voting for this not uh, not in spite of being conservative, but because at the end of the day marriage is a conservative uh, institution, and uh, I can say that the level of debate was very mature. I think public opinion now has swung in support of this legislation, and I fully respect those who disagree. But I think we treated those who disagreed with great respect, even within my party. I never used the whip, so mm. I let people choose, my MPs choose freely what they wanted to vote for. And I'm happy that more than two thirds actually ended up supporting the bill. Do you see this particular act of progress, though, as, as something in isolation? Or as you see it, does it fit into a, a broader program of rebuilding, reconstruction, perhaps even modernization of Greece, following where Greece was, if you think back 10, 12 years ago? Oh, very much the second. Uh, I've made my second term about what I call multidimensional modernization program. And of course, this includes issues related to human rights, but also extends, you know, way beyond that. My goal has always been to make Greece a, you know, a true European country and to achieve true convergence. And why not surpass, you know, the European averages in those indices where we can actually be a protagonist. So this is a long term program. So I never forget that Greece was the 10th country that actually joined the European family mm. back in 1981. But of course, we had to deal with a lost decade, which uh, robbed us of a quarter of our GDP. And we're gradually catching up. We need to accelerate the pace of growth. At the end of the day, it is about growth. Convergence is about growth, but it is also about equitable growth. And that is why I focus so much 
on um, making sure that our, our policies are, are just and that the wealth that we create is spread evenly. So my focus is on wages, on improving the minimum wage, on improving the average wage. I've set very clear targets about what I want to achieve over the next four years, and I think we're well on track to achieve those targets. Obviously, a theme of this Munich Security Conference is going to be former President Donald Trump's bizarre outburst, and it's not the first one he's made about lackadaisical defense spending by America's NATO allies. And I don't want to talk about Greece so much within NATO, but Greece as a defense force itself, is that something you think needs to be stepped up? Because there is an extraordinary statistic, which you will be well aware of, but listeners may not, that it certainly made my eyebrows raise when somebody pointed it out to me, that Greece, though it is a reasonably small country, does still control 21% of the global merchant fleet in terms of tonnage. And obviously, Greek-owned and operated ships have been attacked by Houthis in the Red Sea. I know the Hellenic Navy has sent one frigate, though I believe it doesn't actually have anti-ballistic capacity. Do you think Greece needs to become more of a naval power commensurate with its, its status as a great maritime nation? First of all, let me point out that Greece is spending 3% of its GDP mm-hmm. on defense. And we have been consistently above the 2% threshold, even during the very difficult years of the economic crisis. The reason was simple. There was never a peace dividend in Greece in the sense that we always faced uh, a larger, occasionally rather aggressive neighbor. And we felt that we always needed a credible deterrence capability. And we will, of course, continue to do so. That is not true for many other European countries. Mm. And I think as Europe, we're paying the price now of underinvesting consistently in our defense capabilities. Now, you're right to point out that the Greek merchant fleet is a global powerhouse, and that is why we never shied away from our responsibility to protect freedom of navigation, and that's why we have a presence. We will be having a presence. The ship will sail very, very soon, fully equipped with all the necessary technology to protect itself, and it will go to the Red Sea. And we are also the ones assuming control of the European operation Aspides, which means shields, which works uh, in conjunction with the prosperity uh, shield in the Red Sea. Now, in terms of strengthening our Navy, we have a rather capable Navy, but we're also investing heavily in terms of upgrading our naval capabilities. The first of the three ultra-modern frigates we ordered from France will be arriving. Uh, it's already at sea. Uh, it will be part of the Greek Navy next year. And of course, we're looking at uh, the future mm. uh, of naval deterrence, including unmanned ships uh, and why not submarines. So what we want to do is to make sure that as a big spender on defense, we also develop our own technological capabilities. But this is something which is not just relevant for Greece, it is relevant for Europe. I fully agree with the comments made by the Commission President that we will need to spend more on defense, but we also need to to be smarter when we spend on defense. There is very little joint procurement. There is still a colossal fragmentation of the defense industry in Europe. And regardless of what happens in the U.S., the Ukraine war should have been and is, to a certain extent, a wake-up call from, you know, the big projects such as anti-air defense to the mundane issues of producing enough shells for artillery, which many people thought was not necessary, but Mm. proves to be indispensable in a prolonged ground war. There is, of course, a a frequently volatile region immediately to Greece's north. And I I believe you were meeting with Alban Kurti, Kosovo's prime minister today. We know that because we spoke to him this morning. Would it not make the Balkans a more secure place if Kosovo was more sure of its place in the world? And would it not help with that if, if Greece recognized it? 
Well, we've been um, strong proponents of uh, the European path of the Western Balkans since uh, what we call the Thessaloniki Declaration back in 2003. Mm. I mean, it's been 21 years since then, and we have not made as much progress as we would like. But I think uh, the whole Ukraine topic has brought the issue of uh, the European enlargement again to to the forefront. Now, we've been very, very clear in terms of trying to facilitate, uh, you know, the dialogue between Pristina and Belgrade. And I think we've been also very frank with both. I've been frank. I was visiting President Vucic uh, a week ago. I saw the Prime Minister Kurti. I have very good relations with both. But both need to take a step back at some point and stop pointing fingers at each other if, you know, we want to make some real progress. With Greece's position for the foreseeable future is, I mean, it's, it is not going to, to change. But what we need to do is ensure that the situation is resolved and that commitments which have been assumed, and I also told the same thing to Prime Minister Kurti regarding the Association of Serbian Municipalities. These decisions need to be implemented. I, I just want to go back to the, the thing you mentioned about what you've been able to accomplish as a nominally centre-right politician, and especially in the context of what Greece has been through and what has been tried in Greece over the last decade and a bit. There are countries wondering how they can tackle populism, suggesting that there are extremely simple solutions to very complicated problems. And however often they get proved wrong, they never quite die out. Do you think anything you've done in Greece in your time as prime minister is actually exportable? Is there somewhere in here the genesis of a cure for populism? I don't think there is a general template for combating populism and all political systems have their own peculiarities, their own electoral Mm. laws. In our case, we've been able to form a single party government in other countries, coalitions are a necessity. But maybe I have a, a few thoughts to to share with you and your listeners on, on, on this topic. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, one needs to understand that the grievances that fuel the populist response are real grievances, mm. whether they have to do with income inequality or with people feeling lost in a globalized do you world. Think that, do you think there are always real grievances? Aren't, aren't some kind of populist eruptions animated largely by fantasies? Uh, I think that uh, grievances related to income inequality are very real. Sure. You just look at the numbers. And at the end of the day, because it, it is usually about the economy, that is, that is the case. And there are cleavages and people who feel that they're left behind. I mean, look at farmers now. We've had farmers' protests in, mm-hmm. uh, in Greece. It's very easy if you live in a big city to say, I mean, who are these guys with their tractors just showing up on the streets if we give them so much support? Uh, but that, that is, I think, a, a, you know, a simplistic question. For example, when we looked at the problem in detail, we realized we needed to do something, for example, about the electricity that farmers pay. And we found mm-hmm. a solution to give them a better electricity price because if they're not competitive and if they stop doing what they do, I mean, this will create huge consequences, not just for our uh, safety of our food supplies, but also for regional uh, cohesion. So I'd say quite a few of the grievances are real, but I'm not, ta- I'm not talking about the conspiracy theories, mm. but there, there is something there that needs to be acknowledged. I think the second thing is that, you know, there's been enough finger pointing by the Davos or Munich Security Conference <laughs> to those people, and that never works uh, mm. well. I mean, the, the sort of deplorable attitude I think can be a complete catastrophe. But then, of course, when it comes to real solutions, what we have done, uh, it's sort of, I call it a new triangulation sort of uh, approach to to politics, be clearly pro-growth, reasonably lower taxes while maintaining fiscal discipline, attract investment, simplify the business environment, create jobs on the economy. So a, a liberal approach on the economy that puts a lot of faith in private uh, entrepreneurship. 
what I call a responsible patriotism approach when it comes to mm-hmm. issues of foreign policy. So we were tough with Turkey. We increased the deterrence posture. We managed the migration problem reasonably well. This, I think, caters well to the more conservative part sure. of, of our center islands, but also be rather progressive when it comes to social policy, raising the minimum wage beyond what many people expected, uh, coming up with uh, strategies for those who are you know, less privileged, doing marriage equality, which sort of opens up a new possibilities for a moderate center-right party. But we've also had another advantage. We actually elected the populists to power, and it was a, a strange alliance of hard left mm. and hard right populists, and it was a disaster. And people still remember that. But of course, when you're in your second term, you don't compete with who was in power five mm. years ago. You have to solve real problems. And as long as people think that you try hard, you have to be honest, you have to acknowledge your mistakes, but you still have to deliver, and we are delivering, especially when it comes to the economy. Uh, I think people will give you the benefit of the doubt. And in our case, they voted for us again. There's there's a thing here I wonder about as well in terms of tackling populism, which, as you know, is often tied to paranoia about immigration. And I do wonder whether, I'd be interested to know what you think, whether the problem is not so much that people fear immigration or dislike immigration, but what they actually dislike is the appearance of disorder, the idea that there's there's no program, there's nobody in charge. I think you're right. But Greece has been... In various respects, a success story when it comes to integration. Look at, for example, the Albanians who came mm. to Greece in the 90s. We have second generation kids are born in Greece. They're Greek citizens. They go to Greek school. They consider themselves Greek. I'd say it's overall a successful story. And even, even now, yes, Greece was a relative homogeneous society, but we have to learn. I mean, we learn with people who are different. Probably the best basketball player in the world, Yanis Adedokubo, is a Greek of Nigerian origin. He doesn't look like a traditional <laughs> Greek, but he is Greek at heart, you know, and plays for the national team. But you don't have to be a star at basketball in order for Greece to treat you well, if you happen to, to come to Greece and be born in, in Greece. So the question is, how do you expand this attitude towards those people who, who want to live in Greece and consider Greece their home? And for those who actually come to Greece and obtain asylum in Greece, they're welcomed. Uh, mm-hmm. And they should be welcomed in Greece because uh, we also have real needs in terms of our labor market. And we are a society also of people who have emigrated. <laughs> so we know something about what it means and how painful it is to leave Greece in search of a better future. So I think we can find the right balance. Greece's Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis there in conversation with Andrew Muller. And for more on the Munich Security Conference, tune into the Foreign Desk this Saturday on Monocle Radio. Now, still to come in the programme, Fernando Augusto Pacheco speaks to Canadian singer Ali X. is The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. It is 
7.23 here in London and we're going to continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is the author and political journalist Terrace Diastini. Good morning to you, Terry. Good morning. Uh, you're just back from Miami. I am, yes. We had a, a, week's, a week's holiday by the beach and it was, it was lovely. So I'm on a bit of a strange time zone, but uh, yeah, it's good to be back. Did you see any other famous Floridian uh, residents? <laughs> no, no, we didn't. We're going to go into that. <laughs> yes. uh, we're talking here, of course, about Donald Trump, um, who has put his uh, new sneaker brand up for sale. He's selling sneakers at $399 each. Uh, Would yeah. you pay that? Nearly uh, 400 bucks? Well, you, get, you get the pair. For the oh, three. you get two. <laughs> I think they've sold out already. I think there are only a limited edition. But if you did want to buy the Never Surrender High Tops, yeah, they were $399 on a website. Uh, the papers tell me here. Um, they also sold Trump-branded Victory 47 cologne and perfume for $99 a bottle. Um, did not see any of those for sale. I think you can only get them on, on the website. Um, but he was announcing this at something called Sneaker Con, which is not a, a con, it's a conference um, rather than a, a, than a con um, in Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah, it is possibly Trump. also, yeah. Um, a gathering that bills itself apparently as the greatest sneaker show on earth. I missed that as well. Um, and, and it wasn't entirely welcome. These are these are gold high tops with American flags on them. They really do look quite horrible. Um, and it said he was met with loud boos as well as cheers. So, you know, the, the, sneaker, the sneaker fans were not necessarily very excited by, by Donald Trump's um, never surrender high tops. Well, lots of booing towards Trump coming from Europe too. The FT is talking about uh, the uh, big push now to, to seize Russian assets in case he comes back into power. Yes, I mean, this is interesting. This is uh, Kaya Kallas, the Estonian Prime Minister who has spoken to the Financial Times. She, like many other people, have been at the Munich Security Conference um, this week and although you know she has been saying that Europe should do this, that Europe should uh, confiscate Russian central bank assets for quite a while, um, which apparently uh, Paris and Berlin are, are more cautious about. And a lot of these assets are held in a Brussels-based uh, depository in, in Euroclear. But she is saying that elections are always turbulent times. It's always better to do everything we can before important elections. And obviously, you know, there is a concern within Europe that you know, if Trump uh, comes back into power, then they will be stymied in, in trying to help Ukraine more generally. Um, but this does seem to be kind of a big push now from Europe about you know, how are we actually going to respond to Navalny's death and what are we going to do about it? And of course, you know, Kaya Kallas herself being put on a wanted list uh, by Russia. So she is still obviously very defiant and saying the aim is to scare her, to try and make us refrain from decisions we uh, would otherwise take and trying to, you know, to stand up to Russia. And obviously, you know, we know what happens to, to a lot of people who've been standing up to Russia. Mm. Uh, this is the first time, in fact, that the Kremlin's pursued criminal charges against a Western leader since it uh, launched its invasion of, of Ukraine. And this is all to do with the Estonian government's push to remove Soviet-era memorials. Um, yes, as you know, she uh, is is very concerned about this. She's saying that Putin wants to send a message that Estonia is actually Russian territory and he has jurisdiction over us. So obviously, you know, in Estonia, she's calling it the imperialist imperialist mindset of, of Russia and is obviously very worried, as others in, in the Baltic states are, about what Russia's intentions are towards them, you know, given what's happening in Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, let's have a look at the European Commission now and this wonderful word. I think you do speak 
speak German, don't you? This is Spitzenkandidaten. <laughs> yes, the Spitzenkandidat process. This, reading this article, there's an article in The Guardian here which is saying that Ursula von der Leyen is going to announce today that she's going to seek a second term as the head of the European Commission. But the, the more you get into kind of the, the woods of this, you realise that uh, this is a long and complicated process. So she has to be selected by her own party, the CDU in Germany. Then she has to get other parties within the EPP, the sort of centre-right group, uh, to back her as well. Then she's got to win another vote. And then, you know, there is a choice of, you know, who who is your sort of leading candidate on, on your list. So, And this won't all happen until after the European Parliament elections uh, in June. And depending on whether, you know, the centre-right are still... Uh, in command there and mm. you know how how well they do but also interestingly we we're just talking about Kaya Kallas of Estonia that she is also being seen potentially as as another as a rival candidate for the job in the summer but it's interesting that you know the horse trading starts now in February for a process that not is finally going to have finally going to have its outcome in June and this just shows how complicated the whole thing is really. no, absolutely uh, let's bring it back to the UK now and the fact that schools here have been told to ban mobile phones. Yes, this is um, an interesting one from the UK government. And I have to say, this is something that uh, they keep announcing and then they keep changing their mind about what exactly uh, they are going to do. So according to the front page of The Times this morning, saying schools will get new powers to ban mobile phones. Now, it has to be said that most schools do not let children have mobile phones kind of out and used in class. So they are there are lots of concerns. Um, there are particularly concerns about uh, children using social media Media and obviously, very movingly, we've had the mother of Brianna Guy, who was a, a teenager who was murdered, saying that you know they need to do more to restrict children's access to social media. But I think you know there's there's quite a few there's quite a few problems with this. You know, do you say to uh, children? You know, one of the options here that the government's considering is saying you can't bring a phone into school grounds at all. You can't. You've got to leave them at home. You can't bring them onto the school premises. I think that mo- most teenagers now, you know. Okay, fair enough. Don't use your phone in class. Don't use your phone in school. But your phone is also, you know, it's lots of things. It's your map. It's your, you know, look. It's finding your bus route. It's it's things which are uh, for safety as well, and making sure that you can get home or or tell your parents where you are or what what you're going to be doing after school. And so I think you know this idea of being ultra restrictive, um, you know, and certainly in my kids' school, the main concern is is crime actually, because a lot of children would be ta- being targeted for for their mobile phones and having them stolen. That's the school gates so that that was the main uh, that was the main concern there but you know also you know people have come to rely on them you know children as, as well as adults mm, and parents of course are concerned about safety if your kid needs to call you on its way yeah to or from school there's, yes. there's, there's that too um but but as the teachers union say this is not something that actually needs to have a legislation behind it because schools ban them anyway <coughs> yes exactly and most schools have quite strict policies either you know you've got to leave your your phone in a locker at the school gate or you know the, in in the school or or you just aren't being told you know don't pull your phone out in class and use it because it will be confiscated and it will be eventually given back to you at the end of the day or or the next day so this you know schools are saying does the government really need to intervene directly in, in what schools are doing there yeah now if we delve deep into the times on page 26 we find this extraordinary story mi6's quest for the holy grail thwarted by a spanish cleaning lady yes 
So this is very, this is a very strange story. Actually, this ha- this headline just kind of caught my eye, and I thought we should talk about this. Um, this is uh, it's like something out of Indiana Jones, isn't it? It's, it's sort of Indiana Jones and the Spanish cleaning lady. Um, so, <laughs> this happened apparently, and I think you've got to take this one with a, a fairly large pinch of salt. Um, apparently, during the Spanish Civil War, there is um, a cup which many people believe to be the Holy Grail. Who knows if it actually is the Holy Grail? Because obviously, there's you know loads of different theories. The one that Jesus that. used. At the, the one Last that Jesus Supper. used at the Last Supper. Yeah. And apparently, it is uh, in Valencia. Um, they had there's an agate cup, which pe- many people believe to be the Holy Grail, um, and it was threatened by both sides in the Spanish Civil War. People wanted to, to steal it. But um, the Spanish cleaning lady took it home, risked her life, uh, Sabina Sue, uh, hid it among the springs of a sofa. Um, but apparently British Secret Services had offered her and her family safe passage to the United Kingdom if she would bring the holy chalice with her and hand it over uh, to Britain. And uh, she, But she didn't trust... MI6 to do this uh, and kept the kept the chalice in her in her sofa and and I presume eventually it was it was returned and didn't come to Britain um, and we did not have the sort of the Indiana Jones um, chalice escapes from um, from Spain during the Civil War but you know but who as, knew? as the article says this could now be three or indeed four different Hollywood yeah, movies absolutely well, I'll pitch it right there <laughs> Terry thank you very much indeed that's Terry Stiastini there now here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. The United Nations top court opens a week of hearings on the legal consequences of Israel's occupation of Palestinian territories today, with more than 50 states due to address the judges. This comes as Israel warns that unless Hamas frees all hostages held in Gaza by the 10th of March, an offensive will be launched in Rafah. China offered to support long-time strategic partner Hungary on public security issues going beyond trade and investment relations during a rare meeting with Prime Minister Viktor Orban, just as NATO struggles to expand its network in Europe. China's security assurance comes as Hungary, a Russian ally, has worked to dilute its dependence on Western countries in the past decade under Orban, recently resisting pressures to approve the expansion of NATO in Europe. And Oppenheimer, a three-hour epic about the making of the atomic bomb in World War II was the big winner at the BAFTA Film Awards on Sunday, winning the top honours for Best Film and Best Director, as well as five other awards. Emma Stone picked up the Leading Actress Award for sex-charged gothic comedy Poor Things, which won five prizes overall. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. As has been widely reported, Alexei Navalny, the Russian opposition leader, has died in prison. But everything from the whereabouts and condition of his body to the timeline of his demise is unclear. What's not in contention is the worldwide condemnation of what most people believe to have been a state-sponsored murder. Mark Galliotti is a political analyst and author of Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine, and he joins me now. Mark, I wonder if you could run us through what's emerged since the Russian prison service announced Navalny's death. We understand that the FSB visited the Polar Wolf prison camp in the Arctic Circle just before the event was announced that his body has now been found covered in bruises, that he may have died much earlier in the day. What is the detail? Well, again, as you said, yes, the details are actually very, very confused and confusing and in part probably deliberately so. Look, I think there's very little doubt that Navalny would have died before the announced date because, you know, 
people in the prison service would have been wanting to you know, get a steer from Moscow and everything else. So in some ways, we shouldn't be surprised that the timings don't truly add up. Big question is, of course, where's the body? That still hasn't been discovered. So although there's talk that it had bruises that actually were consistent with attempts to resuscitate, who knows if that's actually the case? The very fact that they're playing, that the authorities are playing such a shell game with the body suggests that there's something that they, they don't want discovered. And then in terms of this, this visit by members of the Federal Security Service to the prison beforehand that, that saw some cameras uh, switched off, again, unfortunately, we're back in the situation of contradictory accounts. Some people are saying that cameras are often and, and routinely switched off at different times when, when you have visits from the, the, the authorities. So you know, the, the, the bottom line is, on the one hand, we know for, so, for sure very little. But the very fact that there is such apparent confusion, that there are so many cross-cutting stories, does suggest that the authorities are deliberately keeping things as opaque as possible. And what's been the reaction in Russia? Well, the reaction is basically one in which people are continuing to come forward very bravely to actually you know, lay flowers and, and, and make small peaceful protests, despite the fact that the authorities are coming down very hard. You know, we've had even the priest who was actually heading to do perform a memorial service for Navalny, who was a practicing Christian, was arrested and charged with starting an unsanctioned rally and then had a stroke while in detention. So we're, we're continuing to see, I mean, there's been about 400 people arrested, a lot more who were sort of briefly detained, but then let out. But nonetheless, people are still coming forward. So it's, it's small scale, it's grassroots, but there is a clear sense of mourning. And how has the Kremlin-controlled media reported it? Well, the honest answer is largely as little as possible. But again, it says something that a man that they more or less try to kind of consign into the memory hole. I mean, even Putin notoriously never even mentions Navalny's name. He just calls him sort of things like that blogger or whatever. Even they actually had to report it. Now, again, obviously, they, they spun it. They, they used it as a chance to say, look, the West is, is rushing to judgment and so forth. But the point is they had to report it. And some of the reports, interestingly, reading not too far between the lines, are also noting the degree to which Navalny did have a genuine constituency within, within the country. So, you know, with gritted teeth, but nonetheless, they're having to talk about the man. So what does his death mean about and for Putin? Well, in the short term, one could actually say that his death, whether it was deliberately arranged by the Kremlin or whether it was indirectly arranged by sort of taking a man with a, a system that was already compromised by being poisoned with Novichok and then sticking him in exceedingly harsh conditions, um, but that it, it represents the degree to which the state is powerful, that it can kill whoever it wants and doesn't have to care. On a larger level, though, I think it actually suggests that the state is increasingly worried. Navalny's great strength was precisely that he had the potential to reach out beyond the usual metropolitan middle class liberals to a much, much wider national constituency. And that is the, is the big fear of the regime at the moment, at a time when there's so many different reasons for people to be unhappy, whether it's the war or worsening quality of life. So I think it does suggest that this is a state which is now more and more uncomfortable and as a result is becoming more and more thuggishly authoritarian. This is more of a kind of a banana republic now than anything else. I mean, there's been an international outcry. How will the West respond? So far, it's just been threats. 
to be perfectly honest, there's really not much that the West can really do. I mean, we will see some I know, further sanctions, maybe on people within the prison service or whatever. These aren't going to have much of an effect. So firstly, there's going to be performance sanctions. There's also going to be people using Navalny's death as an excuse to push whatever particular goal they had beforehand, whether it's that's why Ukraine needs more tanks or, or whatever else. When it comes down to it, I, you know, I think we have to recognize that there is a limit to the amount of traction that the West has on Russian domestic politics. Mm. When it comes down to it, this is actually for Russians in due course to resist. Do you think his death will spark any change? Look, in the long term, I think it is one more way in which you know, his death emphasises to ordinary Russians just what kind of a state theirs has become. And in particular, Navalny stood for, it it sounds like a very sort of mawkish comment, but hope, optimism, a sense that Russia could be different. And in that context, actually, it may well be that as a martyr and a symbol, he turns out to be more powerful than he was as an individual stuck behind the razor wire in an Arctic Circle prison camp. But I, you know, I, I think I think we have to recognise that Navalny's life and his death were indeed significant, but only a small part of a wider struggle between Russians who feel that they want and deserve a, a better kind of state and a regime that really just wants to preserve its own opportunities to steal with impunity. Mark, thank you very much. That's Mark Galliotti there. And uh, Mark's book is Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. It is 10.40 in Addis Ababa, 8.40 in Zurich. The African Union, the AU, grew out of the Organisation for African Unity, which was founded in 1963, with the initial aim of lobbying for the independence of African states from European colonial powers and economic empowerment. The AU has added the objective of fostering democracy, but the body is often criticised for propping up ageing dictators and ignoring civil liberties. Ethiopia is the only African country which was not colonised, has long been viewed as the home for pan-Africanism. And the 37th annual summit of the AU has just concluded there, in the capital, Addis Ababa. Well, Samuel Getachew is a freelance journalist based in Ethiopia. He joins me on the line from the capital now. Samuel, many thanks for coming on, on The Globalist. Let's start with the tensions between Horn of Africa rivals Ethiopia and Somalia. What happened on the opening day of the summit? Well, the president of uh, Somalia made an allegation that uh, he wasn't welcomed at the African Union. He made an allegation that once he reached uh, the, headquarter, the headquarters of the African Union, uh, his envoy or his uh, delegation was denied. And the Ethiopian government is saying the reason they denied him was because he, he wanted to carry his own weapons, which is against uh, the protocol of the African Union. And the Ethiopian government is saying they're the ones who should be in charge of security. But of course, that that row goes much deeper, doesn't it? It's been going on for a while. Yes, I mean um, the whole uh, disagreement goes uh, with the Ethiopian government signing an MOU with uh, with uh, Somaliland, which is which the Somali government sees as uh, uh, a province of the state of Somalia. Uh, for sea access, Ethiopia is landlocked, and the Ethiopian government is saying that it needs some kind of uh, seaport to try to um, support uh, an expanding population that's nearing 125 million. 
So another incident from the summit has been making headlines. Uh, Brazilian President Lula da Silva was there uh, to broaden South-South cooperation. Yesterday, he likened Israel's actions against Palestinian civilians in Gaza to the Nazi Holocaust. What was the detail and the reaction on that? Well, he, uh, from the get-go, he wanted to side with uh, Palestine. He wanted to ally himself with uh, an allegation of genocide that's been going on. Uh, in Palestine against Israel. The Israeli government um, has responded uh, as of last night saying that uh, they, uh, they were so disappointed and they are going to have a serious conversation, they said, with the Brazilian ambassador in, uh, in Tel Aviv. Now, some people say the main or perhaps only achievement of the AU is that it still has all its founding members. The same can't be said of the economic community of West African states. That's the regional political and economic union of 15 countries located in West Africa. Uh, So four ECOWAS members are now under military regimes. Three have opted out from ECOWAS altogether. Did the AU address this crisis? Um, they did partially. There was a question of uh, welcoming them back. Um, and there's also a very universal like uh, argument that, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, uh, I mean, the whole continent uh, has similar governments uh, going on. And the question becomes, what kind of standards are you placing on these countries uh, who feel left out or ignored by African Union, which itself needs some kind of reform uh, to move forward. There has been allegations that the African Union is powerless to do anything, uh, especially in times of uh, allegations of genocide, conflicts that's been going on even in, in Ethiopia and uh, many, many countries, including South Sudan, Somalia and so on. And Samuel, was there a final statement? What was the main takeaway from this? Um, the, the whole conference uh, wanted to be uh, to focus on education, uh, the quality of education. Um, you know, to give you an example or a perspective, uh, within uh, Ethiopia, Tigray, Amhara, and uh, uh, Afar regions had no access to education for the last uh, three years. Uh, they're beginning to welcome students, but some of Ethiopia's young missed three years of uh, their educational years. Um, and that's the kind of discussion that was to have happened. Samuel, thank you very much indeed. That was freelance journalist based in Ethiopia, Samuel Gesetu, and this is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Well, it's time now to get some television news with the critic and broadcaster Scott Bryan. Welcome to you, Scott. 
Morning. Uh, now, we're going to start off with a story that's been reported in The Guardian. It's about Paramount and uh, they cut 800 staff just after the Super Bowl was the big, biggest ever TV show. What possible justification is there? I mean, I think it sort of shows the, the difficulty that TV is having, particularly at the moment. I mean, it was a huge broadcast for Super, Super Bowl last week. They say probably the most watched TV event since the moon landings, although, of course, that data is really quite difficult to track. But, I mean, essentially down to difficulties in streaming but also difficulties within the industry a lot of consolidation taking place and a lot of competition uh, paramount itself was rather a late entrant into the streaming wars which of course were forged ahead with the likes of amazon and netflix are having to sort of cut back uh, around 800 roles uh, so far and i mean this comes not longer after um, other Parts of the media industry, including CBS News, which is also, of course, part of Paramount, have also announced cutbacks too. So I think it sort of highlights that that even though there are those big shared TV moments, moments that millions of us can watch at the same time, particularly around sport, we've also got, of course, two big elections taking place this year, the US and the UK one, um, plus um, the Olympics and um, other big events such as Eurovision, you are still getting a lot of upheaval because it's just on a nightly basis maybe not as sustainable as it once was. Mm. I mean, Paramount owns a huge host of different companies, Comedy Central, MTV, Nickelodeon, Britain's Channel 5. I mean, it's, it's big. It is, it is. And I think it's also the fact it's about trying to reflect where audiences are heading. And I thought it's really rather interesting that this time last week, of course, we had John Stewart, who is the late night satirical news host, return on The Daily Show, which has been a, of course, a mainstay, a sort of torchbearer, particularly with left leaning uh, viewers, very much reflecting their frustrations, but also, I think, providing a big generational voice but what you've also had at the same time is about a 60% fall in late night TV viewership and even a larger one about 75% fall of viewers of the Daily Show itself from the time that John uh, Stewart last hosted to when he's been picking it up now so I think it's sort of shown about how particularly as people head to streaming they might not be watching the same programs they might not be watching um, uh, sort of late night um, programs in the same way they might be sort of choosing big shiny uh, reality show releases or big sort of, um, uh, sort of global dramas uh, costing lots and lots of money. Mm, absolutely and of course the thing is that you, you are no longer restricted as to when you watch these things as Piers Morgan has said I mean he's, he's talking about uh, that when he's on YouTube he's got all the freedom in the, in the world. Yes I mean this is I think an in, interesting sense of PR spin because he's been saying that his um, show Piers Morgan Uncensored which was supposed to be sort of talking about um, cancel culture and trying to um, sort of cancel the cancel culture I mean, I don't think it has been a success on, on, on sort of linear TV viewing to begin with. I mean, it sort of started with about 350,000 viewers. Um, it had a big sort of marketing, big PR campaign uh, throughout the country and certainly built up quite a lot of interest at the time. But the actual TV broadcasts uh, sort of really sort of went down with, um, uh, by about 90% of its viewers in only a few months. 
Uh, I think last week a, a broadcast only had 9,000 viewers. And of course, it's been a um, sort of weaker sibling compared to uh, GB News, which is a rival, which is also seen to be having opinionated broadcasting. So he says that he's moving to YouTube because he'll be able to um, be unshackled from Ofcom guidelines, who could be very specific about what they can and cannot have on TV, and that he'll be able to have long form inter interviews. And to be fair to him, he has had some interviews um, uh, that has cut through, uh, such as with Ronaldo, with Andrew um, Tate, who, of course, has built up quite a considerable um, online fan base, and a lot of people um, don't like him on there too. But, I mean, I, I feel that this is a show that Rupert Murdoch has spent a considerable amount of money on, hoping to maybe try to emulate the success of Fox News in the US in the UK, and it just hasn't really seemed to talk, uh, mm. to take off. I sort of wonder about what the future of opinionated TV uh, programmes and shows would be like in the UK. For me, at least, it doesn't really feel that a mainstream UK audience has really got the appetite for them. Uh, and finally, really interesting business story here about Redbird IMI. Yes, so Redbird IMI, um, they've uh, made a uh, considerable... Um, jump into the TV industry, uh, spending about 1.15 billion for the TV and film producer uh, All Free Media. They're behind some of the biggest TV hits, particularly on British British TV, uh, Fleabag, uh, Squid Game for Challenge. Um, they had um, taken it from Warner Brothers Discovery and Liberty Global. I mean, what's sort of raising a bit of interest is, of course, Redbird IMI, um, which is um, sort of primarily funded. Uh, well, uh, I mean, a large part of part of its funding comes from um, uh, Abu Dhabi, um, is also making, of course, a bid for the Daily Telegraph and The Spectator, mm. which has created a considerable heat within the UK, I think. Um, I mean, partially because it's like uh, the Daily Telegraph is seen to be a, a key voice for the Conservative Party, but also because of concerns around press freedom. Yes. So within the TV industry, not really caused that much of a ripple. Mm. I mean, obviously, sort of signals that they that they see that at a time of great difficulty within TV, um, in terms of funding, that they will be having some sustainability. But of course, this is a story and a company that I think will cause quite quite a lot of, of head, head headlines within the weeks and months to come. Scott, thank you very much indeed. That's Scott Bryan there, and this is the Globalist on Monocle Radio. Finally on today's show, Toronto-born singer Ali X is back with a new album, Girl With No Face. It's out this Friday. It's her first self-produced album full of icy 80s electro tracks. Monocle's uh, Fernando Augusto Pacheco caught up with Ali X. Ali X, what a pleasure. Welcome to Monocle Radio to talk about your fantastic new album. I loved it. Girl With No Face. But before we talk about some of the themes about the music... Is that the case? The album was self-produced. I mean, that's incredible. That's kind of the first time you did that, right? Oh, thank you very much, first of all, for the kind words. In terms of the self-production, it was the first time I attempted an entire body of work. I had dabbled before, so I'd done my song Bitch, actually, which is my the song that I'm known for at this point. That was a self-produced and self-written song. And then there's many songs on collection one, two, and Super Sunset that I had done additional production on, meaning someone else had started the track and then they'd sent me the files and then I'd added my own thing to it. Also, early songs like 
Prime on collection one. I made the demo for that and then passed it off. So like I dabbled, but I'd never attempted a full record because it's, I knew it would be a huge challenge and a huge learning curve. So this is the first time. And precisely because of that, would you say that this is perhaps your most personal album as well? I would say it's the most me. Yeah, I think when no one else is in the room to sort of influence your choices and your opinions, something that is more you comes out for sure. <laughs> I was reading, I think you said also, I always need a bit of camp. I love that because I agree wholeheartedly. And yeah. one of my favorite singles of the album is Off With Her Tits. I think, yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> yes. It, I mean, the beat is amazing. Uh, the lyrics. Well, what can you tell us a bit more and perhaps explain what do you mean when you say you always need a bit of camp? I think it's in my personality very much. And to be honest, my best friends always have this quality as well, where there's this real acknowledgement of the darkness and the pain of existing as a human on planet Earth. Yes. But there is a humor that is used to express it. And my dad's from the UK, and it's also a very British thing, I think not taking anything that seriously, always taking the piss out of everyone. Like, I really relate to that style of humor. And so, off of their tits is, I think it's very that. Go take the piss and fly with the wit, not stop full of shit. Now off the tits, off the tits, off the tits. I love it. It's definitely one of my favorites. And I have to be honest, that album, it's very danceable. I mean, you can see the 80s influence. It feels very hedonistic at the same time, even compared with your previous album. Uh, mm -hmm. What was your state of mind when you were making this album? Was that your intention? Because I love that. I mean, it's not an album for ballads, let's be honest here. No, there's one sort of ballad on there. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's an album that's pretty upbeat, more danceable than my last records. I'm not really hitting the BPMs that actually make it like a club album, but it is danceable. And it's indulgent. I keep saying that. Mm. Like, I just allowed myself to indulge in all my favorite sounds and all my favorite genres and references and... And I think the, the 80s definitely was a very hedonistic time and there was all this new equipment that was happening and all this experimentation and I think that was a time where people were, were really indulging and so just by virtue of me referencing the 80s and the, and the late 70s, I think that comes through as well. your whole career you had the golf influences as well but this one I felt as you mentioned the 80s a little bit of human league here and there some mm. Italo disco as well you know kind of that, that bass mm. as well I think those I can definitely see that in the album yeah for sure that's my personal favorite time in music and I also I did something else at this album that I'd never tried fully before which is I kept it pretty much exclusively analog like I didn't use plugins really with a few minor exceptions, but mostly I was programming MIDI and sending it to drum machines and synths. And that was super fun. And I think makes it sound 
pretty authentically of that time as well. And that was Ali X. You can listen to the full interview with her on the Monocle Weekly on monocle.com uh, forward slash radio. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Vincent McAvinney, Chris Chermack and Monica Lillis. Our researcher, Neoma Ekwe, and our studio manager, Mariella Bevan. After the headlines, there's more music on the way and the briefing is live at midday in London. The Globalist will return at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.